Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. How cold the living hour grief could make you adore wealthy music from Spain, the golden apples. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, and I'm Donna Haraway, a retired professor in the history of consciousness at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to Radical Philosophy. Uh, This afternoon, I'm speaking to Dr. Jane Lima about pregnancy. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, Could you give us some background information about yourself? Yes, so I, at the moment, teach at the UAW College, so the University of Wollongong College, which provides access programs for adults who want to go and study at university. So I just teach them the skills. I hold an honorary research position at the University of Wollongong, so that's an unpaid position. I'm also in the middle of studying archaeology as well, which I'm doing for fun. And, you know, developing, I guess, the research that I've already done in my book to other applications. Like, particularly, I'm looking at the development of consciousness in primates and the consequences of what I propose in my book to adoption and surrogacy as well. Mm. Mm, yeah, that's quite a, quite a few things. So what, what was it that in, inspired you to study pregnancy? Look, I came to study at university quite late. I was in my 40s. And so I have a background, uh, well, my initial background's in finance. And then I did some work as a counsellor. And I think it was through my counselling that I encountered, first of all, a group of uh, a support group that was for adoptees and I am also uh, an adopted child and so I gelled quite well with that group in terms of counselling and their, their issues that they were facing as adults and with their own children. And I did that for about 15 years and in, the, in that period I also trained as a childbirth educator and was working with pregnant women. I was also part of a, uh, a movement to allow or legalise sort of home birth, you know, or get insurance for home birth midwives and to also support birth centres for women. I actually came back to uni to study psychology to upgrade my counselling degree and I was in the middle of that study when I realised that really my heart was in philosophy and that a lot of the problems that I was seeing I thought were very poorly understood and that we needed a theory to go with what I was seeing in the real world. So I've come to it in that kind of roundabout way. 
Yeah. Could you tell us about Zoe's death? Okay, so I begin my book with the story of Zoe. So Zoe is the name that was given to a fetus by her family, which is her mother was Brodie Donegan. Brodie was actually 32 weeks pregnant with Zoe when she was struck by a car that was driven by somebody who was um, drug affected and ultimately Zoe was still born. This sparked the outcry over this. So what happened is that she was charged, the woman who was driving the vehicle was charged under the Crimes Act of 1900 and the way that that works is that Zoe's death was considered to be an injury that was done to Brodie Donegan. So there was no charge of manslaughter or on behalf of Zoe herself. And the reason for this is because in Australia a child or a fetus has to be born alive and has to actually take a breath outside of the womb before the law recognises Zoe, would have recognised Zoe as a person. So this sparked a lot of debate and Brodie Donegan's story is not the only story like this. There's been a few. And so in 2010, there was actually a review by Michael Campbell into whether or not we should amend the Crimes Act or whether or not there should be another part where we actually recognise Zoe as a person while she was in utero. Now, Michael Campbell actually recommended that we do not do that and in Australia at the moment the Born Alive rule still holds but there's pressure on that legislation. There's to date been three uh, amendments tabled, one by Fred Nile and two by Chris Spence who has worked with Brodie Donegan. Fred Nile did not but Chris Spence has worked with Brodie Donegan to draft this bill and basically what they want to do is say that a fetus is a person from around 20 weeks of gestation or if they weigh about 400 grams in weight and so if and that's taken from the, the our understanding of what a stillbirth is so that would change significantly the sort of charges that can be brought against somebody who harms a fetus even if Brodie Donegan herself is not harmed so the last bill actually passed the lower the Legislative Assembly and that was tabled in 2013 and it passed 63 votes to 26 so it got quite a fair bit of support even though it's opposed by the Medical Association and the Legal, the Australian Bar Association for reasons I'll explain in a minute I guess. So the problem with doing this, doing this legislation is that it actually means that the fetus is something separate to the woman herself who is pregnant and there's a long history of there being issues with that. These types of legislation are already probably quite widespread and becoming more widespread in America. But to date, Australia's holding to the Born Alive rule, yeah. So it's contested, you know, her story has sparked a huge, you know, a debate in Australia about whether or not fetuses should be attributed personhoods, which means they would have rights, basically. And as soon as you get a fetus with a right that is separate to the mother, then we can treat the fetus as a separate person to the woman 
who is pregnant with that fetus and you raise the risk of having then conflicting interests or conflicting problems. Yeah. What are some of the ethical implications of the relationship between a woman and a fetus? Look, the current understanding of a woman, the way that our culture often sees a woman is being is as a, as a fetal container. So she is the thing or the person within which a fetus grows and develops. That, and we don't understand them as being linked in any way. It's almost like a fetus is implanted it evolves according to its DNA code or if you have religious beliefs you might think there's other ways that the fetus grows and develops. But there's no, we don't have any sense that the woman actually is the creator of that fetus. And yet the scientific evidence actually supports that she is, not that she's not. And so what happens is that if we start to attribute the fetus is having an identity that is separate to the woman in in a really solid sense. We might do it in a soft sense, and I do actually recommend that, but, but in a really concrete sense, like this is a person with rights that are equal to an adult, then you're going to get conflicts of interest. So if a woman wants to do a late termination, for example, that would be a problem. It probably arises, the issues would arise most often in Australia, as I, as I assume they do in the US, which is around ch- choices around birth. So, for example, if a woman decides not to take a doctor's recommendation to have a caesarean section, but rather wishes to have a natural birth, then the doctor can appeal to the rights of the fetus and actually force that that woman to have a caesarean section against her will. And that has happened on numerous occasions um, in the US. There has been one case, I believe, that has has gone to court in Australia on that, and the woman actually agreed to the caesarean before the magistrate had to make a ruling on it. So what what it has the potential to do is override a woman's ability to make choices about her own body and about her particular situation in particularly around her birth but around how you know what's going to happen to that to that fetus it it takes it out of her hands and makes it a legal decision rather than a personal decision even though that fetus is still in her body which you know raises huge questions because as we've seen in the US a fetus if, if we're talking about a fetus's right to life that right is sort of going to override a woman's right to choose it's going to trump that every time where I don't think we need to understand the relationship between a woman and a fetus as competing rights I think that's a really bad way to try and understand what that relationship is Hmm. Um, could you explain about the notion of the soul yes so a lot of the understandings that we have about how a woman houses a fetus come from historical notions of the soul and for a lot of people who who still believe in the soul then the life that the fetus has is given to the fetus externally so it's not something that the woman creates through her own body but rather is something that's given by God or by nature or something else so what it does what the notion of the soul does is it creates this dualist thinking. It, it permits, if you like, a separation between 
what is life and what is an actual body. So as I said, yeah, the soul is <clears throat> provided usually by something outside the woman. So in this, it informs the idea that a woman is a container that, that just houses a fetus, that really the life of the fetus comes from somewhere else. So these sorts of stories have been around for a very long time and they're changing. We, we don't sort of, certainly I don't believe in the notion of a soul. I don't think a lot of my philosophical colleagues believe in the notion of a soul. And so if we don't have something entering or life doesn't enter the body, we need to rethink about how that happens. So how does life come to be? You know, how does it evolve and mature? We know that, you know, there's certainly something in our DNA that disposes us to become conscious through the course of gestation. But we also know that fetuses that don't get certain requirements or are not in my book it's moved in certain ways don't actually develop that capacity so the interrelationship with the mother's body um, is absolutely imperative to to the rise of consciousness in a fetus how yeah. is a how is a soul different to selfhood yeah well so, so a soul is something that's given i think selfhood in our culture so if you don't believe in the in the soul entering the body at a certain point in time Selfhood is something that you decide. It's, it's a little bit like the way we've had to modify our notions of when we die over, over time. You know, death used to be um, when you stopped breathing or when the heart stopped and we've had to modify that now to brain function. So like selfhood, selfhood is something that we culturally decide when we're going to call something a self or a person. Selfhood, for me, the way that I understand it, I think some, uh, 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 a fetus becomes individual or individuated from the maternal body at the point at which it can move its own arms and legs or it's, it can move in ways that it directs. So if it wants to touch its face, it can actually move a hand in a way that directs it toward the face so it's self-directed movement I think at that point we can say a fetus has some degree of selfhood it's called it's a very minimal degree but that you know we can say that that does kick in around about the 20th week of gestation yeah prior to that I think we're having trouble ascribing selfhood to a fetus yeah you're listening to radical philosophy on radio 3cr 8.55 on your AM dial and I'm speaking to Dr Jane Lima about pregnancy. Now Donna Haraway asked a question, who speaks for the fetus? Yes, so this is the idea that lots of people overlay their own political agendas over the fetus. So we saw that Brodie Donegan, for example, experienced the loss of her fetus in a way that she felt was inadequate to the way the law dealt with the loss. Her loss was inadequate, that that she felt that Zoe deserved a, a, a life of her own. Fred Nile, however, has tabled a member's bill to say that the fetus should be considered a person from birth. 
So the idea of who speaks for the fetus is that in both cases, both in the case of Brodie and in the case of Fred Nile, they're claiming to speak for a fetus who cannot speak for herself. And in doing so, they overlay their own views and their own political positions over the fetus. So instead of saying, look, I believe this, they say, I'm speaking on behalf of the fetus. And it makes it their position sound much more objective than what it actually is. So we have to ask when we're thinking about these debates, who is speaking on behalf of the fetus? What agenda are they bringing? Because they're not being objective about this. They're actually not standing in a neutral position. It's a political position, but they're representing themselves as though it's an objective position. What is your analysis of women's embodied relation to her fetus as an experience of otherness in recent feminist work? So, look, I'm highly critical of the way that many people and feminists are included in this. Um, Assume that a fetus is an entity that we can call an other. So it means someone who is other than the woman. And there's an assumption that this happens from conception. And I think while I don't think we actually physically experience the otherness of a fetus until we feel it move, that's the first concrete physical experience that a woman will have of fetal otherness. Now, that's not to to say that we can't imagine the otherness before then. You know, we go for ultrasounds, we see these images, we see images on the doctor's wall, you know, or, or, or in magazines, and we can imagine that that's what our fetus looks like. But I don't think we actually experience the otherness. And, of course, in the past, when all this imagery wasn't there, women would not experience the otherness of the fetus until it was until it moved and even then I'm not sure we can say that that fetus is completely other because for anyone who has given birth you will know that you're surprised when your baby is born you're shocked there's this you you really have an experience of meeting that baby for the first time and there is an absolute otherness there that I think we struggle to experience. Most women would struggle. I hate making overarching claims. I think there's always exceptions. But I think a lot of women would agree with me that 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 birth experience of actually meeting that, you know, the baby when it's actually born and outside of you is phenomenally different to the experience of being pregnant. And there is an experience of having something in your stomach and you can imagine what that looks like. But that otherness, that real otherness, doesn't really happen until birth. And so I do think that we make a mistake when we just assume that the fetus can be experienced or is other to the woman's body until that time, yeah. Could you explain about Merleau-Ponty's accompaniment? Yeah, well, that really is a French word that simply means coupling. 
And so the way that I use Merleau-Ponty's theory in my book is to try and, because ultimately what I'm trying to do is describe the relation between a mother and a fetus. I'm trying to understand what that is so that we can think about it in ways different to what we currently do. And accouplement really simply means that we are gestated. We develop and are born couple. So for him, we, the way that consciousness develops or the way that we grow and develop as children is a process of separation from our biological mother initially and then from others in the world. And that when we are born, we are born coupled with other people. So we are, we, you may have noticed that if one baby in a room cries, they all cry. If I've done some work on neonatal imitation, so I've actually had the great pleasure of being present at my grandson's birth and was able to, when he was very young, stick my tongue out at him and watch him trying to stick his tongue back uh, out at me. And so when we do things, the infants uh, are connected to us. And so I'm trying to explain how that process works throughout the process of gestation, that we actually couple with our uh, fetuses during gestation and that this is actually imperative. It's necessary that we do. And you can find women that do not. We, we probably now call it fetal attachment. And women that don't attach well with their fetuses have a, have a range of issues, you know, will be, or will often, fetus will often have issues and the woman herself will often suffer as well for being pregnant with a child she can't connect with. Yeah. It means that it, this means that this coupling occurs and I think the fetus starts out as part of the woman's body and I think throughout gestation it actually gains in independence, starts to move itself and, and even at that stage in utero it's kind of pulling away if you like from the woman and while the fetus is in the woman's body she needs to I guess keep it coupled and how she feels about that is going to depend on how she reacts to that gestation how clear that is <laughs> yeah. I've heard it said that the, the baby can hear its mother's voice and it's yes. quite connected to her Absolutely, and, and others around, yes. So from about seven months, fetus is absolutely able to hear. They also are moved in very rhythmic kind of ways. So things like their proprioceptive capacities develop from the rhythmic movement patterns. You know, if you think about what it would be like to be held in a body with a beating heart, with a digestive system going, with somebody who's walking around, there's an immense amount of movement in the womb. And, and rhythmic kind of movement as well. And this couples, you know, we, we know that babies do better if, well, a lot of babies, not all babies, um, do better if they are kept very close to their mothers after birth, you know, their biological mothers after birth, that they're most comforted there. We know that premature babies do better if they are you know, kangaroo-cared. So in other words, they're sort of strapped to their mothers. They, they develop with less problems than those that, are, that need to be kept separate in, in humidity cribs. Mm. Yes, is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already discussed? 
probably just a little bit what we talked about before in that the that a lot of my work is has been in reaction to the growing interest in the public sphere in the gestational relation and this has been the result of the increased amount of legislation it's mainly in America but it's sort of Australia is under pressure at the moment to bring in some form of legislation that recognises fetal rights. I think that would be a mistake. But in response to that, I do think that Brodie Donegan has a point and that the grievous bodily harm charge does not properly account for the loss that she experienced. I think to say that the loss of a 32-week-old fetus is an injury to her is undervaluing and probably under acknowledging the grief that that family would have experienced. So I do think we have to rethink the relationship that a woman has with a fetus and and I know that there is an enormous amount of work being done on that now fortunately and I feel privileged to be a part of that because we need to better understand that relationship so that we don't get into this situation where women's choices and women's rights are actually eroded more and more and more, which is what I see now. So I think it's kind of important that we get on the bandwagon and develop other ways of think of, of dealing with these issues rather than the black and white way of rights. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, do you have any future study plans within this field? Yeah, well, look, I'm currently looking at applying my understanding of what the gestational relationship is to adoption and to surrogacy. Uh, Through my own work and through my research, I think it's fair to say that children that are adopted at birth grow up differently, not necessarily badly, but they certainly grow up differently to, to infants that are kept with their biological parents. It's unclear uh, at this stage what those issues are, but we do know that there are also some problems that seem similar with children that have been gestated through surrogates. And so the surrogacy industry is very keen to promote the container model of gestation because that works for them. And I think we need to rethink, not to say those things are bad or that those things shouldn't happen, but that perhaps we need to better understand them so that we can support people that are involved in that system. And yes, and I'm fascinated to look at the rise of consciousness um, gestationally in animals. I've always been interested in animal ethics, so looking across across primates as well as just in human beings has been quite fascinating, hence the study in archaeology, because I've been looking at that from an evolutionary perspective. Lots of fun. That sounds great. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you for having me. And I've been speaking to Dr Jane Lemar about pregnancy. hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought. (laughs) 